Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Studying progress is important because it makes society better off in the long run, especially over the past 200 years. We need to know how to promote more progress and reap its benefits faster. At the same time, progress and innovation can be disruptive or alarming in the near term, and so we need to explain why progress is important to those who are unsettled by it. We need to paint an optimistic vision of the future and explain why promoting progress is critical to achieving it. Here to discuss the importance of studying and selling progress is Jason Crawford. Jason is the author of the Roots of Progress blog, where he writes about the history of technology and industry and the philosophy of progress. He is also the creator of Progress Studies for Young Scholars, an online program for high schoolers about the history of technology. Jason was formerly a software engineering manager and tech startup founder. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me here. In your first blog post back in March 2017, you wrote the following. My motivation in this project is to discover the nature of human progress, to learn its history, and therefore discover its nature. By progress, I mean progress of all kinds, technological, scientific, political, moral. Uh, all right, we're here in 2020. Uh, what have you what have you learned? Uh, did you learn things that you were totally that that were totally unexpected? Have you been forced to revise your priors in any any way? Tell me tell me a little bit about sort of your intellectual journey. Yeah, great question. Wow, I'm impressed you went all the way back to the very beginning um, of the blog. You know, this the whole thing started out as a, a very personal project, and then it became sort of a more public project. Um, in terms of yeah, things that I did not expect going in. Um, you know, there's the number of things I feel that I've learned that seem almost obvious in retrospect, and yet I would not have anticipated them or, or listed them for you in the very beginning. Um, one thing that really stood out to me as I was reading stories of uh, of invention and innovation of, of, of all kinds is just how important um, it is uh, really that we, different kinds of funding models. Um, so how is progress uh, funded and financed? Um, where do we actually, you know, like how do we pay for it? Probably um, a, kept... a, a, neglected, a, a neglected issue uh, to, to think about that, I, I would think. Yeah. And I kept running into stories where it seemed that progress stalled for, you know, years or decades. Uh, because, you know, and in part because it just, it wasn't being funded, you know, the people who were working on it had a hard time raising money, or they were working, uh, you know, with very little resources. Um, Howard Florey's lab at Oxford that developed penicillin uh, around, uh, you know, end of the 1930s into 1940 is, is a great example, working on the biggest medical breakthrough of the decade, and yet, you know, uh, like a very underfunded lab that was really scraping around for resources. It's uh, and so that's something we still think a lot about today. But you know, there's the there's a debate about about funding science, about funding innovation. Is the government spending too much? How much can the private sector do? How much can the private sector do by you know through uh, through startups, raising venture capital? How much uh, government uh, needs needs to fund it? Sort of where where do you sort of come since you brought up funding? Where do you sort of come down on how we need to fund innovation and and scientific progress going forward? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, you know, if you think about uh, maybe uh, if we sort of look at research and development and we split it up, 
you know, the, the development side, once something is kind of maybe an obvious uh, or, or not so obvious, but a clear, uh, you know, profit opportunity, business opportunity, I feel we have invest, you know, for-profit investment mechanisms that do, these days do a pretty good job of funding those things. Um, and, uh, and all the incentives are kind of aligned properly in that, uh, you know, investors, especially in venture capital, are incentivized to uh, take you know, sort of contrarian bets. You know, they're um, they're incentivized to get in early because it's by investing in something early that you get the biggest uh, returns if it succeeds. Um, they are in competition with each other, and so they kind of diversify. They take different approaches. Um, they're all trying to find some you know niche where everyone else is wrong, but they can be right, and they can be maybe the one uh, you know person who backs an early venture when when nobody else will. Um, but not everything you know works well uh, in a for-profit investment model. Um, basic science, in particular, you know, basic research, as, as they call it, is um, operates on very long time horizons, much longer than the typical ten-year VC fund. It's hard to capture value. Uh, you know, basic basic research. I mean, you discover some fundamental law of physics or biology or something. You you put it out there. It's not something you can patent. It's not something you should be able to patent. Um, it is, uh, you know, and so how do you capture the value? How do you, how do you recoup your investment on that? So instead, you know, we fund these things with nonprofit models, um, whether that is uh, government, uh, which there's a ton of, you know, government funding for science uh, since World War II, um, or whether that's uh, nonprofit, uh, you know, pr uh, private foundations. But um, I, I'm concerned that the incentive uh, sort of structures in the nonprofit world, whether it's private or public, are not aligned with the, the quote unquote social value that we get um, out of research. There is, uh, there's a really high um, you know, value to the world in, again, being sort of the first backer you know, early in some project when it is not obviously going to succeed. And yet, I don't think that there's a way in the nonprofit world that uh, you know, the, the people who are right early get sort of like orders of magnitude disproportional credit for what they did, uh, you know, the way that um, the way that early seed investors do in, in the for-profit world. If we go back to that example of Howard Florey's lab mm -hmm. developing penicillin, you know, people wrote him very small checks, uh, you know, a few hundred pounds, British pounds in, in the day. And uh, who were those people? Uh, I feel like they should be in a hall of fame somewhere as the people who, who kept this penicillin thing going and ultimately saved, you know, who knows how many millions of lives. Um, you know, on the other hand, if something doesn't work out, you know, in the for-profit VC world, nobody really cares. I mean, you lost your money. Okay, you can lose all, you know, one x your all of your investment in something. It's okay if you make up a hundred x on some other investment. Nobody really cares about your your flops in the in the venture world. Um, but I'm sort of concerned that in the nonprofit world, that you know, people shy away from those risky things because it's seen as, oh, you know, if you backed something stupid uh, or or crazy, then uh, you know, and it flops, then that could be like a career-ending move. Well, so, can you think of an uh, example of that? No, not off the top of my head. Um, uh, it, it's it's more of a hypothesis, and it's something I want right. to you know look into more. Well, I certainly, but, um, I certainly think, I certainly think, um, I, I do worry about the caution, for instance, uh, in government and government funding things that there's not there's not as much uh, you know risk taking as we'd like, and if something goes wrong. And you'll say, well, that's that's government failing again. It should never, you know, it should never pursue those projects. Uh, you know, there, I, I remember, like in the 1990s, for instance, there's a lot of a lot of criticism, uh, uh, and, and into the 2000s by some Republicans that 
government that uh, government research projects that, that didn't seem like there was an obvious um, you know practical application that it was just you know these were just wild goose chases I, and I do worry about that yeah there's certainly a problem when you um if you know early stage, uh, I'll just call them ventures, but you know whether that's a business venture, uh, an engineering venture, or a scientific uh, venture, you know when when early stage things are put up to a popular vote, like they're almost always going to fail the popular vote, right? Um, they're usually non-consensus uh, uh, prospects that only a couple of people believe in, and even experts don't agree about. So, uh, you know, if you if you look at the history of progress, I think it's clear that in, in order to make breakthroughs on a regular basis, we need a way for those non-consensus sort of maverick contrarian ideas um, to get at least small amounts of funding to kind of get off the ground and, uh, you know, have a way to prove themselves. Right. I mean, you clearly care about progress, and that's why you're writing about it. But it seems to me that Americans don't care about progress the way we used to back in, say, the 1960s. Now, instead of thinking about the future as a good place to live, we have a lot of nostalgia and fatalism in our politics. Do you agree with that impression? And if so, what happened to Americans' enthusiasm for progress? Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I definitely see the same thing when I kind of look throughout history um, and look at people's, uh, both their sort of, how they looked ahead to the future, um, in the future in general, or sort of specific developments that might occur versus, uh, you know, and then also how uh, progress was celebrated. What's really remarkable in reading about some things, if you read about um, the day they completed the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, or the day the Brooklyn Bridge uh, was completed, or the day in the uh, 1955, I think it was, uh, April 1955, when uh, the polio vaccine was announced um, as being uh, safe and effective, there were massive celebrations. Um, you know, there were parades in the streets, or at least people, I know they offered Jonas Salk a ticker tape parade, uh, which I think he <laughs> declined. Um, but they wanted to, you know, they wanted to celebrate, you know, in that way. Um, uh, you know, maybe you could go up to 1969 and the moon landing, right? The, the, those astronauts were, were absolute heroes. And it's hard to, for me to think of something that we have celebrated in that way, you know, in the last uh, 50 years, it seems that we have, uh, taken on a much more, uh, dark, uh, bleak view of the future Our sci-fi. It anecdotally seems has sort of become more, um, dystopian. And I don't know all the reasons for that. Um, I think there's a combination of, on the one hand, there's just sort of some complacency. Life is really comfortable today um, mm -hmm. in a way that it never has been. And uh, I don't think people are really taught the history. I don't think you get it in school. Um, sort of falls between the cracks of history and science classes. Uh, I think that uh, people are just sort of unaware of um, or very only very dimly aware of how rough life used to be just 50 100 200 years ago uh, what we had to deal with and uh, and really the amazing amount of of you know the material abundance we have the comfort uh, the health and safety um, I mean this is a gift from our ancestors and I think people take it for granted I think they just aren't aware of it at the same time, I think people have gotten a lot more worried about unintended consequences um, mm -hmm. of technology, 
they've gotten more concerned about safety risks. They've gotten more concerned about environmental damage. They've gotten more concerned about health uh, impacts and so forth. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of which there's there's legitimate concerns. Technology is power. Power uh, is can always be dangerous. Um, power is uh, you know technology is amoral. It is neither good nor bad. It's sort of you know it's what we do with it and and how we use it. We can use it for good or evil. We can use it wisely or foolishly. Um, and so there are there are real issues here. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's caused people to uh, sort of turn a jaundiced eye to progress itself rather than asking, you know, how do we make uh, wise progress and good progress um, instead of, uh, you know, reckless or, uh, you know, progress or, or foolish progress. Let me read you something from the uh, MIT science philosopher Leo, uh, Leo Marx. Um, the initial enlightenment belief in progress perceived science and technology to be in the service of liberation from political oppression. Over time, that conception was transformed, or at least partly supplanted, by the now familiar view that innovations and science-based technologies are in themselves a sufficient and reliable basis for progress. The distinction then turns on the apparent loss of interest or unwillingness to name the social ends for which the scientific and technological instruments of power are to be used. Does, does improving technology mean progress? Yes, it certainly could mean just that, but only if we are willing to a, uh, willing and able to answer that next question. Progress toward what? What is it that we want our new technologies to accomplish? Uh, I think that's a good question. Can you answer that? Yeah, um, it, it is a good question. I mean, I think there are some obvious um, ends uh, that technology can achieve that most people would agree on. Um, uh, you know, improved health, uh, the reduction of disease, the extension of life, um, the, uh, you know, the ability to uh, communicate, to, to learn, to um, the ability for everybody in the world to experience, uh, you know, to, to get knowledge and experience art and, uh, and culture, um, the ability for us to travel, to visit each other, to, to see, uh, you know, the world and, and other cultures, to conduct commerce and, um, uh, Etc. I mean, the the it's the it's you know ultimately I, I judge progress on a humanistic standard. What is good for human life, health, happiness, and flourishing? Um, what is good for education? Uh, you know, arts and commerce. What gives us more capabilities? Um, you know, and and more options in the world. I think a lot of people would answer that question by saying it's going to give us a Chinese-style surveillance state or social media addictions, or truckers riding in the streets because they've lost their jobs to robot vehicles. I think people are imagining a dark future because optimists have been unable to paint an attractive counter image of what the future might look like. Yeah, it's true. So, I mean, first off, I think there are, like I said, there are, um, you know, technology can be used wisely or foolishly. There are real hazards in any technology, and it's something that we should be, uh, it's something we should be aware of. It is, uh, it, the normal, you know, a, a typical reaction to this is if technology is risky, then maybe we should sort of slow it down or, um, you know, or sort of back off. I have a slightly different uh, take on it, or maybe a very different take, which is that, you know, safety itself is, or can be, can be a goal of technology. Safety is a goal that we achieve the same way that we achieve other goals like material abundance or instant global communications. We achieve safety through applied intelligence. 
um, and ultimately through safety technologies, including um, you know policies and procedures and uh, sort of best practices. So I think uh, when we think about safety, we should think of it as something that we need to deliberately focus on and uh, actively achieve rather than something that is achieved through um, a, a slowdown or a stoppage or a passivity, right? Um, safety is not achieved passively, it is achieved actively. Um, and so I think the questions we should be, the, the productive questions to ask ourselves are, um, you know, how do we make sure that we develop safety technology as fast as we develop, uh, you know, uh, risk increasing technology, right? How do, how do we develop safety increasing technology as fast as we develop risk increasing um, uh, so that we have the proper balance there? Uh, another issue that you brought up is say, you know, the example, for example, the surveillance state, I think so. Right. And this comes back to my point that technology is not good or evil, but can be used for either. Uh, it is absolutely true that tools of technology have given, uh, you know, more tools to governments, again, to use for good or, or for evil. Um, the ability to uh, travel uh, throughout a country, through a large nation rapidly by train, to communicate uh, through electronic networks, you know, these things have allowed central governments to exert much more uh, control over a wide area than they used to. You know, in the, in the old days of kingdoms and, and empires, they had to delegate a lot. You know, a king could not rule a large area very directly. He really relied on, um, uh, you know, barons, vassals, satrapies, whatever, you know, different words in different times and cultures. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, today it can be, it can be, it can be a lot more totalitarian. And, uh, you know, so ultimately what that says to me is that we need to uh, just as we need to develop safety technology in line with other technology to, uh, you know, reduce unintended consequences, we also need to develop our moral technology, you know, to to use a phrase, um, in line with our material technology to make sure that we use it, uh, you know, for for good and for human uh, freedom and flourishing, and not uh, for for evil and for totalitarian control. Do you think that today we have a good group of technologists in, say, Silicon Valley? Do we have people that are forward thinking? So they're not just trying to create technology for the future, but they're also giving people a vision as to why all disruption that comes with technology is worthwhile. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, not really. You know, there are a few, I would say a minority of folks in um, Silicon Valley who are thinking about the long-term future and coming up with ambitious projects and, and visions uh, for the future. Um, you know, the poster child for this perhaps is, is Elon Musk, um, who, you know, has a lot of very ambitious long-term projects going on. Uh, the, um, in terms of venture capitalist, uh, the, the, the venture capitalist firm Founders Fund, uh, you know, with, which Peter Thiel is a part of, has, uh, has kind of made its, uh, its name or its mark here, uh, you know, talking about big ambitious projects for the long-term future. Um, a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are, uh, and, and I say this as someone who spent most of my career in tech and spent, you know, basically a decade in uh, building tech startups and in, in, in Silicon Valley. So I know this community pretty well. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the folks are just sort of are focused on uh, what can, what are the opportunities right now on the horizon? Right. What can we go after? What can we achieve? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of progress actually is made by people who see you know, I mean, it's one thing to look decades out and come up with a sci-fi vision for the future, and artists absolutely, you know, should be doing that. Um, but when it comes to industrialists and, and inventors and so forth, um, 
I, I think more progress in general is made at the horizon, um, at the at the frontier of just figuring out what is actually possible right now and how can we move things forward. Um, you know, rather not, than not, sort not, of painting a huge sci-fi vision. Right, right. Not all progress has to be some you know life altering. Uh, we just invented a warp drive. Uh, you know, lots of incremental progress right. year after year. You're still pushing that frontier forward. And right, and, and we probably have a, a tendency to dismiss that because we, we don't see it happening. And then we look back and like, oh, actually, we've uh, we've come we've come pretty far. I mean, that's obviously important too. Listen, I, I, I want to make sure we get to the progress studies for aspiring young scholars program. We're yeah, talking great. about you know, telling 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 the story of progress. Tell me, tell me what you're doing with that. What, what is this? What is your goal? Yeah, sure. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars is an online learning program in the history of technology uh, aimed at the high school level. Uh, we ran it over the summer as a summer program and was successful enough that we are uh, going to keep it going uh, into the fall. It's going to be uh, sort of like an after school uh, yeah, program that will run through the fall and, and on an ongoing basis. Um, this is a joint project between myself and a private school called Higher Ground Education, and they're running it through their high school uh, brand, which is known as the, the Academy of Thought and Industry. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they approached me back in May asking if I wanted to create something for the, uh, you know, an online program at the high school level, and, and I jumped at the chance. Um, uh, really proud of what we came up with. Uh, we've run uh, a number of classes of students through the program now, and, and it's gotten a really great reception. We go over the history of technology. Uh, what are the, you know, we, we start off with the history of global living standards. What was it like to live as a hunter-gatherer? What was it like to live in the ancient or medieval world? And then how has our, has our way of living and our, st our standard of living changed today? And then we go through a survey of what were the major discoveries and inventions that actually created that standard of living. You know, how did we get here? How did we learn to uh, mechanize agriculture and um, you know create synthetic fertilizers so that we can feed uh, the entire world with something like you know three percent of the population and not have famines on a regular basis? How did we uh, you know learn the germ theory of disease and learn how to fight germs through uh, you know, sanitation, water treatment, antibiotics, vaccines. Um, how did we uh, create an entire energy industry and, uh, you know, learn to harness energy so that we didn't have to depend on wind, water, and muscles, um, and, you know, and, and and so on. It's it's topics like that that have, you know, created this, uh, you know, cr created this modern world. Uh, some amazing speakers you, you've lined up. That's right. So we also have Associated with the uh, program, we have a speaker series, which is actually open to the public. Um, so, so that part, anybody can join in on. We've had uh, some fabulous speakers. You can find them all on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you just search for Progress Studies for Young Scholars on YouTube, um, we've had some folks like uh, Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison, who coined the term Progress Studies in the Atlantic a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some uh, uh, economic historians like Joel McKeer and Deirdre McCluskey. Uh, we had Max Roser, the founder of Our World in Data, um, and, uh, and a lot of really interesting well, I would, speakers. I would love him. It would be a dream come true for me if this subject somehow became a standard bit of high school curriculum. Last question. Do you think this pandemic will inspire us to think more about progress um, and, not, and not take it over? You mentioned earlier about this complacency. So I've been thinking about things that will kind of break, assuming that's true. Uh, and I think it, I think there's an element of that that is true, sort of breaking us out of this complacency. Um, and I'm wondering if, if, if this pandemic might be one of those things. I'd, I'd love us to get out of the complacency without that, 
but that's that's sort of our reality and that would certainly be you know a one sort of positive uh takeaway if we stop because i'm sure there'll be other pandemics and other crises in the future that we have to deal with being technologically advanced and wealthy and sort of forward thinking would certainly help to deal with any future crises yeah certainly um i think that's possible however you know every crisis is subject to every, every event in history is subject to interpretation and different people will interpret it differently and come to opposite conclusions you know based on their sort of philosophical priors um i think that you can so certainly if you thought that progress was done if you thought that we'd basically kind of did everything we needed to do and there was really really no big goals left i hope that the pandemic has has shaken you out of that uh, and and made you realize there's actually a lot left to do uh, but, you know, people can interpret this in different ways. Um, people can interpret it as you can look at the pandemic and say, this just proves that we will always be at the mercy of nature. Uh, this proves the hubris of mankind thinking that we could, uh, you know, create a global network of, uh, of transportation where people are flying all around the world. And, um, you know, just think what will happen when uh, the bacteria develop resistance to all of our antibiotics, et cetera, and so forth, right? You could take a very dim view of it. Um, conversely, you could take uh, a view that says, look, we have, uh, throughout the last 100, 150 years or so, we have actually made enormous progress against infectious disease. We are not quite done, obviously, but we have, uh, you know, we have solved for the most part most bacterial diseases with antibiotics. Um, we have solved most uh, waterborne diseases, uh, in, at least in areas that are wealthy enough to have good uh, water sanitation infrastructure. Um, we have solved most foodborne diseases and insectborne diseases, uh, again, in sort of areas that are wealthy enough to have good infrastructure and, you know, safety, um, you know, food safety uh, practices and so forth. And there's really just a few categories of disease left, these sort of... Um, you know, highly contagious, person-to-person uh, -person spreading, uh, viral uh, you know, respiratory diseases, uh, you know, these, these uh, things like COVID. And uh, we just need to beat them back the same way we beat back, you know, all the other diseases, again, through applied intelligence. We need, um, uh, we, you know, we need better vaccines. We need better vaccine platforms so that we can, you know, develop vaccines even faster. Um, we need uh, perhaps broad spectrum antiviral uh, drugs so that, you know, if we, if we had one of those the way we have broad spectrum antibiotics, um, you know, these viral pandemics would be uh, would be much less dangerous. And so that is the um, you know, that is the progress, uh, progress positive approach to take. And that's the approach that I take. My guest today has been Jason Crawford. Jason, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for having me.